Good morning. <clears throat> uh, my name is George Garcia, and as Spencer said, I am one of the community group leaders here at Mill City Church Casey. Uh, we are going to be in Psalm 1 today. That will be on page 254 of the Blue Bibles. If you do not own a Bible or do not have one currently, please take that one. Uh, today, not only is today's uh, sermon uh, from the Word of God, it is about the Word of God. So today would be a wonderful day for you to take home a Bible. Uh, and since it is about the Bible, we're going to be talking about reading the Bible. Now, reading the Bible is something that I struggle to do a lot growing up, and even to this day. Whether it was because I was lazy, or I just simply forgot, or because even when I was reading the Bible, I did not know what I was doing. Growing up, I didn't really grow with a lot of direction and a lot of explanation as to why reading the Bible is so important. All I was told that it was just something that a Christian should do. When I actually began implementing Bible reading as I grew, as I grew and as I mature, uh, it's just, I just added it to the list of uh, something to do. I just added it to my routine, uh, which I was fine with. Reality is, for me, I'm someone who can do the exact same thing every single day. I can wake up, I can shower, read my Bible, go to work, come home, play guitar if I have some time, catch up with my wife, eat dinner, and go to sleep. I could do that every single day for the rest of my life, and I would have no problem with that. Now, to some of you, that sounds like a prison routine. <laughs> to me, your prison is my dream. Regardless, even if you grew up Bible reading all the time, or you've tried to implement Bible reading in your life, or even if you've never even opened up the Word of God, Psalm 1 serves as a reminder and an explanation as to why we should not only just read the Bible, but we delight in the Bible. So we're going to read Psalm 1. It's only six verses. Then I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to tackle each verse uh, one at a time. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let me pray. And Lord, we are humbled and undeserving of this opportunity to open up your word. And I ask as we read through Psalm 1, may it serve to remind us and explain to us why we get to meditate and delight in your finished work. Lord, I ask that if there's any area, uh, any, anywhere in our hearts that are distracting us from this morning, I ask that uh, you take that away and we focus and we pay attention and pay the respect to your word that we are supposed to. I pray this in your name. Amen. Verse 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinner, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, we're not starting off with the positives, clearly. We go from walking in the counsel of the wicked to then standing to then taking a seat among the scoffers. 
This is a natural flow of sin. Sin is a very progressive thing. And since we are naturally inclined to be comforted by sin, this is, sin, this is the process of sin in our life. An example of this is actually myself in the workplace. I work in my free time. Not in my free time. The summer is my free time. I work uh, at a school. I am a PE teacher, which is awesome. But um, as if there's any teachers in the room, you know that during the school year, teaching can be draining. And because it's so draining and sometimes it feels unrewarding, it leaves room for gossip and for slandering. So usually when I'm walking the halls before or after school, because we don't ever get an opportunity to talk to each other uh, during school, I'll listen, I'll, I'll hear some gossip in a classroom or just wherever the break room is. And I'll stand there, I'll be walking, and then I'll stand, I'll, I'll listen to it. And I'll think to myself, ah, it's not worth it. I shouldn't do it. Ah, but that person's pretty terrible. Let me just see what they have to say. Let's just, let me just, let me just walk in, we'll see. And then before I know it, I've taken a seat among the scoffers. And I am either condoning what is being said or I'm contributing to it. And it just happens just like that. And so the reality is what uh, verse 1 is getting at is what, uh, how sin progresses in our lives. We also see this in social media, where you can see someone asking for help or advice and with the situation they're going through. And all you, you read through the comments, you read through whatever is being responded to them, and it's just terrible. It's, it's strictly worldly advice. There's nothing it's rooted on. But the problem is, we go from mindlessly scrolling, then all of a sudden, we're also contributing that same type of advice. We see this in movies and videos and shows we watch. We get so hooked. They're very clever with how they bring us in. And before we know it, we're being more influenced by the show we watch than by the word of God. We see this with political commentary. A show that I used to watch or listen to was the Ben Shapiro show. I know Spencer has mentioned that a couple of times. It's a political commentary show. It's a conservative political commentary show, which essentially, it's just an excuse to lash out on anything that isn't conservative. And you know what? I love it. I love it because in my sinful nature, for some reason, is drawn to that. It's drawn not necessarily to the political idea, but to the idea of someone lashing out on someone else. And so I've had to stop watching it and listening to it because I get hooked and I get influenced by it. All of a sudden, I'm, I'm thinking these things that uh, the show talks about. We also see this with lust and the over-sexualization of pretty much everything. You can just be watching a movie with friends or your spouse, and then some triggering or provocative scene comes up, and now you can't get that out of your head. And before you know it, you're indulging and acting upon those thoughts and feelings. Now, when you take a seat somewhere, you normally take a seat when you're comfortable, right? You don't take a seat somewhere and stay there for a long time if you're not comfortable. And so we see that in verse 1, that the last step is to take a seat among the scoffers because that's when you get comfortable. And so we need to take a, look, a closer look at what gives us comfort. Where are areas in which we have taken a seat among the scoffers? Or even when we're playing with fire, what catches our attention? What makes you stop in that hallway? 
and what makes you finally eventually join. The psalmist goes on to give a direct counter to this in verse 2. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now there's a, very, it's a big U-turn here. We go from what the blessed man does not do to what he does do, and what he does is he delights in the law of the Lord. The Hebrew meaning of delight being pleasure. So what he is doing is he's taking pleasure in the law of the Lord. Now, side note, but also very important to the rest of this, is that when the psalmist wrote this, they were referencing the Ten Commandments when they said law of the Lord. They were referencing the Ten Commandments, which was the written word of God. In the New Testament, we see the writers and the authors reference Psalms, Proverbs, as well as the Ten Commandments, for the same exact reason. It's the Word of God. So we fast forward to today, and we have this right here. So when we read that in Psalm, when he meditates on the law of the Lord, we are referring to the written Word of God. He is meditating on the written Word of God. Now with knowing that, we can go back to verse 2. The psalmist goes from listing what not to do to an all-encompassing word in delight. The word delight is used several times in the Psalms, all pointing to ultimate joy and satisfaction. It's not just don't do this or don't do that. It's take pleasure in and delight in the law of the Lord. This is why, this is a, the way verse 1 and verse 2 kind of go together is verse 2 is a, a complete uh, opposite reaction. It is, it, is a, it is a counter to walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing in the way of sinners, and sitting in the seat of scoffers. And it, uh, what that means is, what the psalmist is trying to get at, is that delighting in the law of the Lord is the fundamental alternative to walking and sitting and standing in sin. I'll say that again. Delighting in the law of the Lord is the fundamental alternative to walking and sitting and standing in sin. Now, why is that the case? Well, because the Word of God is a story from front to back that all points to Jesus. Alistair Begg, who is a pastor in Cleveland, Ohio, put it like this. We find Christ in all the scriptures. In the Old Testament, he is predicted. In the Gospels, he is revealed. In Acts, he is preached. In the Epistles, he is explained. And in Revelation, he is expected. In Genesis, God tells us that the serpent, he, will, he tells the serpent, he will bruise his head with the offspring of that woman and that eventual offspring being Jesus. Jesus arrives in the New Testament and we see miracles and his teachings all throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, such as bringing Lazarus back to life, turning water into wine, and revealing that he knew the woman at the well. These are just all of the countless examples of Jesus' miracles and his work. Then in Acts, we see people like Paul and Barnabas preach the finished work of Christ to the nations. And then some areas and people need correcting or refining, so they need Jesus explained to them. They need that finished work explained to them. So that's why we have the letters to the people in Corinth and Galatia and Colossae. And then in Revelation, the Bible ends on the expected return of Jesus. And it's not just like, oh, he's coming back. No, it's, if you take a look at Revelations, it is a triumphant return. He will come back and collect his people. So all throughout the Bible, from front to back, it's all about Jesus. It's all about the wonderful story of Jesus coming to the earth, 
and reconciling his people. We get to delight in that story. That's why it's the fundamental alternative. Now, we, we can focus on the word delight a little bit. It's used here purposefully. Delighting in something is an external and an internal reaction to something. Take, for example, you have a friend, and by God's grace, I do have a friend in our group by Joe Benton, who uh, he has a smoker. So just picture that you have a friend who has a smoker, and they text you at like 5 in the morning, because that's usually when these things happen. And they say, hey, I'm going to smoke a brisket today. Come on down later tonight. First of all, wonderful friend. <laughs> and second of all, I'm there. And once you get there, you know, you wait all day. They pull that brisket out, and after it's been smoking for several hours, and it's being pulled ever so easily, because it's been there for like 10, 11 hours, and it's on your plate. Mac and cheese and baked beans are there, but they're not important right now. You take that first bite, and you just take in that moment. I know some of you are already thinking of it, and I know lunch is later. But there, you take in that moment, and in that moment, I am delighting in what's in front of me. I'm delighting in the food, in the brisket. I am delighting. It's not only internal, it's external, right? I'm saying, mmm, but I'm also like, oh, this is, this is amazing. But the crazy thing is, ever since I found out, ever since I got that text, ever since I was told that, my whole day got better. I've been delighting the entire day. My day was that much more enjoyable because I was looking forward to what was to come. And then when I partook in it, forget about it. That's, when the psalm, that's what the psalmist is trying to get at here. Delighting in the law of the Lord day and night. To delight in the law of the Lord day and night, is to constantly be influenced and affected by the word of God, so much so that you are so eager to return to it after you're done reading it. And you're eager to return to it because all you're thinking about, or at least what some of the things you're thinking about are the word of God. It's keeping you in check. It's helping you respond to your coworkers. It's helping you be loving and patient to people that don't deserve it. And the only way you can do that is by delighting in the law of the Lord. We move on to verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Now we're, going, now we're seeing what the blessed man is, what the, what, what the word blessed is. The streams of water that plant the tree is the word of God. The tree mentioned has a firm foundation. It has one that is everlasting and solid. And that's where we need to be, right? Where we are, where we're naturally inclined to be, is we like to walk and listen to the counsel of the wicked. We like to stand in the way of sinners, and we like to sit down because it's comfortable, because it's easy, because it doesn't take that much effort. But what we want to be is like the tree that's planted by streams of water um, that lasts forever, even in seasons of difficulty, even in seasons of suffering. Jeremiah uh, goes on to say it like this from Jeremiah 17, verses 7 through 8. Blessed is the man who trusts, whose trusts, <laughs> blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Verse 8. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. 
What a wonderful picture that is of a tree that is planted by streams of ever-flowing water. And that is what is true for the Christian who is delighting in the law of the Lord. That seasons of suffering, seasons of anxiousness, don't feel that anxious. They don't, they don't, you can bear it because you have the word of God. You have the truth and the delight in that story that can bring you comfort, peace, and joy that actually lasts. Now, if you look at me, you can clearly tell that I've planted plenty of trees in my time. Regardless, what I do know about planting a tree, specifically trees that bear fruit, or specifically fruit trees, is that they bear fruit. And it bears fruit for the benefit of the planter and for those around it. If you ever had a friend who gardens, normally, whenever their vegetables or fruits come in, they come in a surplus. And, in almost, and almost always, because they come in a surplus, they share it with those around them. That's what it's like to be planted by streams of water. The Lord delivers in a surplus. You prosper, and you get to share that fruit with others. You get to show love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control to those around you. And it does not wither. So you get to bear that fruit into eternity. About, been leading group for about four years now, four and a half years. Um, and not that the first two years are bad by any means, but something changed about two years ago. I mean, you can chalk it up to people, you know, maybe we had some new people come in and they were great. Um, but something radically changed in our group. And what that was, was by God's grace, we began to fall more in love with his word as a group. And it came at a great time because then we multiplied. We, be, we were a group that was in love with the word, that was being taught the word, that was talking constantly about the word. And then we multiplied, and now we have another group that meets in, Cong in the Casey area. And I know that they are being infatuated and in love with the word week in and week out. And that changes. That's what actually changes people. It convicts, it convicts us is the word of God. And so, and none of that has to do with the group leaders, by the way. It all has to do with his word. It's all because we decided that we, we pressed on, we kept reading his word, that eventually it will, it will change someone. Moving on to verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, this is a very contrasting image um, in that the chaff is being driven away by the wind. <clears throat> we talked a little bit about this when we, went, uh, when we were in Ruth. But an example I can think of to kind of better picture it in your head is, and, and the reason I chose this example because I am a coffee snob, but when you roast coffee beans, uh, it's a very tedious process. You've got to put it on the, the, the roaster, but on and off, on and off. It takes forever. But after you actually do the roasting and the beans look like what we would all uh, picture uh, coffee beans to look like, you have to put it into a colander, which I recently learned. What I, when I got married, I learned what a colander was. <laughs> and you put it in the colander, and you kind of shake it back and forth because you're trying to get rid of the skin of the bean or the chaff because it's no good. You don't want that on your coffee bean. The chaff brings no benefit to anyone and they have no foundation. Therefore, it makes complete sense that the wind would drive it away. 
Charles Spurgeon, who was a preacher in the 1800s, describes the chaff as intrinsically worthless, dead, unserviceable, without substance, and easily carried away. It is very clear that the wicked have no foundation unlike the blessed. One is planted by streams of ever-flowing water, and the other one has nothing to stand on and is driven away by the wind. Psalm 1 is very, very clear on this. That's why I'm thankful for verses like 5 and 6. Verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The one that walks in the counsel of the wicked, the one that stands in the way of sinners, and the one that takes a seat with the scoffers will not stand with the congregation of the righteous. It will be very clear to the Lord who is who. We see this in Matthew. John the Baptist is making a reference to what Jesus will do. Matthew 3.12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus will return for what is his, and the rest will not make it. Which is why I'm thankful and completely humbled by a verse like verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Now, this is more than just knows about, okay? So when you, when you read that, uh, it's like a spouse knowing you, or like a best friend who knows you. They know a lot about you, you know, that they know your tendencies, they know, maybe they know some of your thoughts because maybe you, you, know, you talk to them, you confide in them. But there is only one person, one being, who knows everything about you. All the good and all the ugly. And when you think about it, it's kind of terrifying. Imagine if your best friend knew every single thing about you. And you think they know a lot about you. But imagine if they knew everything about you. It would be quite terrifying. But the one that knows you completely is God. The righteous can have peace because a loving God in heaven knows their way and will protect and he will preserve them. If there's anybody I would want to know me like that, it would be him. And one of the main reasons I can think of is because a lot of times people will use knowledge of you to hurt you, right? When people find things about you, one of the reasons we get a little scared to confess sin, scared to talk in group, is because we're scared that people knowing this about me, what are they going to think of me? What are they going to say about me? What are they going to talk to other people about when it comes to me? A lot of times that is a very, very terrifying thought. But we can have peace knowing that there is an omnipotent, loving gracious God who knows us, and he will not use that knowledge against you. That is, the, that is the grace aspect of the Lord. Now, you may be asking or telling yourself, what if I'm not good at this? What if I'm not good at reading the Bible? What if I've tried and I've tried and it came to nothing? What if I just can't? Here's my encouragement to you. Last summer, I was part of the summer internship 
here. And just to give you a little insight on the summer internship, there's a lot of meetings, a lot of classes. Uh, you go, it's, it's, it's pretty rigorous, honestly. And one of the biggest things about the internship is showing up on time. And I love punctuality. Um, I do. So when I discovered that punctuality was a major component of this internship, I was really excited to show off my arriving on time skills. <laughs> but second week in, I forgot that I had a meeting with Isaac. So not only was I late, I was non-existent for the meeting. Third week, I was very late or arriving just on time to the things uh, between Monday and Thursday. My pride was being tested. The final straw for me was on Sunday, as it was on a, on a Sunday, and I forgot that we were supposed to show up at 8 a.m. Here, we're supposed to show up at the church at 8 a.m. And at the time, Chet was uh, my track leader. I was on the pastoral and like teacher development track, and Chet was my track leader. And I remember that I, I had to, I was like, I have to apologize. This is like the fifth time. And I remember the walk of me going to, to apologize to him. And even as I was apologizing to him, the shame that I felt of my failure was honestly unbearable. I had my head down. I was, I was talking to him, and I was like this. Because of all the shame that I felt. And after I apologized, I kind of just stood there. And Chet looked at me, and he said, Hey, chin up. I thought, okay. But then he said, you're fully known, you're fully forgiven, and you're fully loved by a Savior who would gladly do it again. Feel that, remember that, and continue your, your day like you believe that. Notice he didn't just say, hey, chin up, show up on time next time. Hey, chin up, maybe what you can do is this, 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 and this to show up on time. Now he reminded me, of the gospel. The work is finished. And even in our shortcomings, such as reading the Bible, we get to be forgiven. And out of that, out of that forgiveness and grace, we are empowered to be more like him. And part of that is delighting in his word. So then how do we set ourselves up for success in reading the Bible? I have a couple of practical ways that can work. First and foremost, pray. pray. Pray for the desire to read his word. The reason praying is the first thing I could think of is because praying sets us up for success and because it is the acknowledgement and the remembering of why we are able to delight in his word. If we skip this step, if we don't pray, if we don't ask the Lord to make us more like him and to desire his word, then we're just doing good works. That we're just, we're just, it's just something else to do. And we'll be missing the entire point of delighting in his word. Second, recognize it's a battle. If you struggle to meditate or even just read through the Bible, like any goal, you start with pure discipline. Now, uh, I started uh, working out for the first time in my life about two years ago. And when we started, it was me and two other guys, we, we, were, we, were, we were on it three or four times a week. That was crazy. But then the second, I let go of that discipline. The second, one of us was like, eh. It went from four, 
three to four times a week, to two to three times a week, to once or twice a week, to maybe once every two months. So my point in that is that stay disciplined to reading the word. Read it in the morning. Great time to read the word of God. Now, I know some of you are saying, I'm not a morning person. My question to you is, what time do you go to sleep the night before? Now, my point, don't get me wrong. My point is not that reading in the morning is the way. But my point in that question is, what are you doing to set yourself up for an opportunity to read the Word of God? Third, set a specific goal. So if I'm up here and I tell you that I want to learn a new language and add it to my arsenal of languages, and I just say, hey, I just want to learn a new language, it's really easy if I just keep it at that broad, vague goal. It's really easy for me not to be held accountable to it. And you really don't know what to ask me. Really, all you can ask me is, hey, how's that new language going? And I can just say, eh, it's, it's all right. It could be better. But if I told you I want to learn 45 new words, write three new sentences, and be able to have a one-minute conversation with someone in that new language, and the new language being Portuguese, let's say, then you would know exactly what to ask me when you come up to me. Hey, how's Portuguese going? Hey, how many words have you learned? What's your favorite word? What's the sentence you wrote? It'd be a lot more difficult for me to kind of make something up there. So set a specific goal. Fourth, ask people in your community group to hold you accountable. More specifically, we all have that one person. Ask that one person that you know will hold you accountable. Sometimes we selectively choose who to hold us accountable because we know maybe they're not going to ask us. Uh, also, I learned this term recently. It's called a bystander effect. Don't just tell your entire group, I struggle with reading with the Bible, gather in two or three people. Because the temptation, if you tell 10 to 12 people, is that they'll probably be like, oh, I'm sure he'll ask him about his Bible reading. I'm sure they'll ask, right? And the problem is, if everyone does that, no one's going to ask you about your Bible reading. So get about two or three people, and that just decreases the chances of, oh, I'm sure he'll ask him. Lastly, don't forget why we get to do this. We get to do this because of Jesus' finished work on the cross. That is what empowers us and changes us to be more like him and follow him. There is no one like him. The band is going to come up. We're going to sing a song that is based on Psalm 1. And I want this to be our prayer and our encouragement for this week. There's a line in the song that I really love, and it's in the chorus, so we're, we're going to hear it, and we're going to sing it over and over again. Form us more and more into a people who love your word. I love that, because it implies, and it's, it's humbling, because it's us admitting that we need the Lord to be able to love his word. On our own, we will, we will easily and so fast, we will, and so quickly, we will take a seat among the scoffers. But we love his word, we love him, we love people because he loved us first. Because he finished the work on the cross. That is why I love this line. Because it, it is just, it is that it, we are admitting that we need him first. Also, I love the word form. 
because you're not, it's not going to be something you, you all of a sudden fall in love with tonight and then you're reading the Bible every day starting tomorrow. When you form something, it, it, it has stages, it takes time, it takes steps. So don't lose heart, don't be discouraged because you lost, you, you didn't read it one day. But in those days of our shortcomings, remind yourself of the finished work on the cross. Remind, we need to remember that we are forgiven, we are fully known, and that knowledge will not be used against us. That knowledge is actually what, is what brings us to him. And because of that, we get to delight in the whole, we get to delight in that the whole time. We delight in the story of salvation and the truth of grace and the truth of reconciliation. We get to delight in that. And that will give us joy, peace, and comfort that is everlasting. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we are singing this last song, as we are just thinking of what Psalm 1 has to say about your word. Lord, I ask that you, um, through your grace and your forgiveness, and in our shortcomings, Lord, may we not use your grace to paralyze us, but may we use your grace to motivate us, to push us, to empower us, to delight in your law. Lord, remind us, uh, as we are reading, and as we delight in your word, or as we fight to delight in your word, remind us that even if, we, even if we don't understand, even if it takes time, Lord, you're not going anywhere. You will sustain us, you will preserve us, and you will maintain us the whole way. We, we are so appreciative of that. We are so humbled by that, Lord. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?